Balancing Death Kirk is a weekly Keyforge podcast focused on competitive play. The podcast is hosted by Kita Mode and Kodamarin. The show is here for listeners to gain a better understanding of how to evaluate decks, how to evaluate their own board position, and how to anticipate opponents' decisions. Without further ado, here's this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of Balancing Death Quirk. My name is Kira Mode. I'm here with Kodamarin. How's it going? And today we're going to be talking about holding cards in Keyforge. So for the most part, almost every episode we've talked about is about just jamming cards, getting the most value you can every single turn. And today we are going over uh, the exceptions to that and when you might want to think about the game differently and when you might want to make some suboptimal plays. So the way we've decided to talk about this is for three different reasons why you would hold back and make a suboptimal play. For board state, for more efficiency later, or to kind of hold a big card. Um, and we're going to talk about scenarios for each of these. Um, I think we have a pretty I, – I I'm excited to talk about this because holding back cards is really what's going to change – what's going to determine a good player versus a bad player. All right. So, yeah, as Kodamer said, we have a couple examples that we – we went over a little bit beforehand just so we know what we're going to go with. So Kodamer is going to give you an example of when you might want to make a suboptimal play to improve your board state. I'll give an example of when you might want to make a suboptimal play to gain the most amber possible. And then we'll go into specific bomb cards and how they go. But to lead us off, Kodamer, uh, give us our example. So my example is from a deck that I have in a scenario that I come across a lot. And it's basically how to organize a board and when it's important to pause and organize it better. So here's, here's the scenario. You're going second, and your starting hand is a Dominator from Mars with Taunt, three Untamed guys, a Hunting Witch, a Witch of the Eye, and Dew Fairy. They don't have much protection in them, but they're incredibly valuable. And then two off-faction cards, say they're Shadows, say they're Steel cards, that you're not going to use on your second turn because it's too early. So my question is, do you play the Dominator first, which is the suboptimal play to, to set up a board to put the Hunting Witch and the Witch of the Eye next to, or do you just jam those three cards, play Hunting Witch, play Witch of the Eye, play Dew Fairy, and just watch them get eaten while your, your Dominator comes down? So the big question here is, is it worth it to slow down your, your starting turn? Um, we, we talked about this in, in Kira Mode. Your, your answer was no. Yeah, okay, so in this scenario, I personally would rather just play the three untamed guys. And the, and the biggest reason is you just don't know if they have targeted kill, and most decks will have targeted kill. So if you go with the Dominator first, it, the top card you draw, if it's another Mars card, you feel super bad. And so then if you then go into the untamed turn and then they just kill off your two guys, that's that takes away a lot of the value. But, I mean, ultimately, I guess, if you know for sure that they don't, have ways to kill the hunting which if it's next to a big taunter then this turn could actually work i mean at that point you're thinking about it from a three turn window right it's like the first turn you play the dominator the second turn you play the hunting witch and then presumably your third turn that's when you're really starting to pump out the value of that hunting witch if it lives um i don't know if it always plays out that way so like i find this a little flimsy but i always try to default back to cards but in your specific deck or in a specific matchup, it could make a lot of sense to lead off with a really terrible opener of just Dominator. So before we, before we talk about the actual deck, because I have 
answers and opinions about my own deck. In this scenario, just my play style is I want to build a sustainable board. I'm excited to see the Dominator next to my squishy guys. That's his job. He gets his value from protecting these guys. If he isn't protecting the Hunting Witch and is the Witch of the Eye, those are his best friends. If he's not protecting them, then no matter what he's next to later, is going to feel bad, right? So I'm, I'm really happy to play the Dominator first. It, it feels kind of bad. Um, and it's against their one card, which I'll talk about in a second. But like, I want to get the most value out of my cards. I want the Dominator to protect the little guys as much as I want the Hunting Witch to generate a bunch of Amber. And I want the Witch of the Eye to reap me a bunch of cards back. And the other thing is that the Doof Fairy has Elusive. It can kind of hold its own. Um, if they played the Terror turn one, one of my favorite turn one cards, or even Mother, um, those are both dudes. If they see me go Hunting Witch, uh, Witch of the Eye, Doof Fairy, they're probably just going to go, oh, wait, I'm not going to do my normal turn two. I'm going to kill that Hunting Witch, or else it's going to get out of control. I don't like them giving them that option to say, oh, I can race them. Or I should kill this hunting witch. I want to protect it. And specifically in this deck, I know it's going to want to protect. I know it's going to want to reap. I know it builds a really defensive board. It's got evasion sigil. And I'm just excited about getting the most value, not only out of the amber generators, but out of the protector himself. Yeah, um, and, and I think part of uh, our sort of uh, disagreement on this one stems from the fact that this is actually kind of a hard example. I think whenever you're talking about board versus amber, I think amber is really easy to understand in this game because all you have to do is count. Whereas with board, you have to predict, what, you have to look at what cards they have in their deck, what cards you have in your deck, and then also you have to think, how is their turn going to play out? What house are they likely to pick versus not? And it's just more variables that you have to account for. So I think I'll go into my example, which I think well, is... Well, the, the, the last thing that I want to mention... Before, before we jump off, is that playing this deck, one of the first things that I do is when I'm looking at the Archon card, it changes how I look at the Archon card. It makes me actually say, okay, what targeted killer do they have? I know that I'm going to want this Hunting Witch, and I know that I'm going to want to protect it with the Protector. Um, I don't have a Shadow Self, so I can't... It's a, it's a different kind of protection. If I have a Shadow Self, I'm immune to the, uh, the Hand of Dis, or, or not the, the, the Twin Bolt Emission. If, I've yeah. got, if they've got Hand of Dis... I know that I've got to keep the Hunting Witch on the far side next to the Protector. Um, so I guess what, what I just wanted to say was um, knowing your deck and knowing that these scenarios are they exist and exist in your deck changes how you should prepare for a match and how you should play a match going into it. Yeah. So, yeah, in, in Code Dameron's example, you really need to know their Archon card to, to know if this is the type of play you can make. So my example is going to be a, more of a rookie example. Um, so my example is we're going to assume that you're playing um, Untamed and Shadows. And so here's your hand. Your Shadows hand is three cards. You have Bait and Switch, you have Ghastly Hand, and you have Relentless Whispers. Um, for your Untamed side, you're going to have Vigor, Scout, and you're also going to have Life Web. Let's, for the sake of this um, example, we're going to assume that neither player has any characters on the board, and both players have four Amber. So here's how you can do this. If you're just looking at these cards from raw amber value, if you play the three untamed cards, they just gain you three amber. If you play the three shadows cards, they're going to gain you three amber, but then you also steal one amber for Relentless Whispers. So you're basically gaining this, four this amber. Gain one. They, ha they have oh, a yes, guy that you can kill with they have, they have to have at least one guy you can kill. My bad. But, but the, the basic gist is you're gaining four and taking one versus just gaining three. 
Um, in this scenario, you would say that you should always just take the shadows, right? If you're just looking at it from a one-turn perspective, the shadows turn is just a stronger turn. However, if let's say you play Untamed first, that reaps you up to seven, and you're pretty certain that your opponent's not going to stop you from forging a key, and you also know they're going to gain like at least one or two amber, now your next Shadow's turn becomes that much stronger because not you're still going to get the Relentless Whispers, you're still going to get the Ghastly Hand, but you're also going to get the Bait and Switch. So over a two-turn period, going Untamed followed by Shadow's is better than going Shadow's followed by Untamed because the Untamed doesn't gain a lot of value, but the Shadow's can gain a ton of value. Where, where this is interesting is when you ask yourself, or this is what you're going to be asking yourself when you look at this hand. First of all, am I going to forge a key if I hit seven? And that's, that gives more value to the untamed side. Um, how hard are they going to reap with their guy? Maybe that one guy you kill with the Relentless Whispers, maybe he's looking at my, my hunting witch. Maybe, maybe you're looking at that and go, oh, I guess the Relentless Whispers is more powerful here or more valuable to kill their important guy. Um, maybe it's a John Smith. And then finally, um, will the Relentless Whispers still hit the next turn? Maybe you're expecting a Shadow Self to come down. Maybe they put uh, the banner from Untamed and some of the other guys have plus one health. Um, and then your Relentless Whispers loses value. And on, on a similar note, will your Life Web go off next turn? Do you think that they're, oh, they've been playing A, B, A, B. They're going to play Untamed next turn and jam four guys. My Life Web is going to be great. You got to weigh these things. Um, yeah. But all, yeah, in, all in the things action. being the same, waiting for your bait and switch to go off harder is probably more important than getting the plus four amber in steel rather than the three amber. Yeah. So in, in both of our examples that we gave, we're both effectively doing the same thing. We're saying we know that this house that we can play is better. But we're going to choose to play a worse house because over a two-turn or three-turn window, it is more valuable to do so. Um, I Mine is really simple because it's just amber, and the things that would stop it and, and enable it are very easy to predict. Whereas uh, Kodamrins is a little bit tougher. It's more of an advanced situation because you have to consider more variables. But we're still on the same page, right? Like He's trying to create a situation where you take a suboptimal turn to help yourself on the board. I'm trying to create a situation where I do a suboptimal turn to help me in just raw amber, but we're still talking the same language. And, and I think that despite us talking the same language, it's cool that we have these disagreements. There's play style differences between the two of us and how your deck is going to play. So these suboptimal turns might make sense to you and might not make some sense to someone else. And that's why you have different styles of play. That's why we have different decks. Yeah, and I think the instinct from someone that would have heard my example is they probably would think, hey, why don't you just play the two Shadows cards, gain your four Amber, steal the one Amber, and you know do the damage, but then just don't discard the Bait and Switch. Like, just keep the Bait and Switch in your hand, and then now you can get that on some future turn. Um, and so I think holding back a faction is something that I do a lot, holding back a single card is something that I do significantly less often. Because when you hold back a card, there's an opportunity cost to holding that card that I think a lot of players uh, discount. And what you have to think about is how often are you going to actually be able to play that card to its maximum value versus how often are you just losing a bunch of cards in your deck? Um, so the way I try to think about this is I think about holding cards such as chains. So let's say your deck is Shadows, 
uh, Brobnar Dis. In all likelihood, the way that your pattern goes for this uh, factions will be if you play Shadows, your next one, let's say you play as Brobnar, the next one you play as Dis. When you redraw, you're probably going Brobnar again because you're going to have some Brobnar cards on the board plus some Brobnar cards in your hand. Then you probably weed out a couple discards from your next turn. And then the turn after that is when you finally play all your Shadows cards. So what you've done is you've gone five turns without playing Shadows. And so you've effectively paid five chains for your bait and switch. So if you're able to play your bait and switch when you do play Shadows, and let's say you're even able to play it for good value, let's presume that your bait and switch hits for a three amber steel, so a six amber value. That still might not be worth the six cards that you paid to keep that card in your hand. Like, like having all of those chains um, might not be worth it. So... This is assuming that this is with bait and switch and bait and switch is like the card and exactly how much value you get out of it. Playing it for steel one just feels kind of bad sometimes, but the the way that it's, it's good to, to, to evaluate that is considering how long you think it's going to be before it goes off. And now the, the best way to kind of measure that for bait and switch in particular is when you forge, you're going to drop six Amber and your bait and switch is going to hit that much harder. Um, and that's when you have to look at your bait and switch and say, I'm probably not going to forge before they do. I'm probably going to forge, and then I'll forge a turn or two later. That's when you should say, you know what? I need to play this now to steal one card at a risk of not losing five cards in the long run. It's not going to feel as good, but it's the, probably the right play. Um, the, the count, one of the counter arguments to this, which I think is, I think of a lot, is once you play bait and switch, they know you don't have bait and switch. And they can start reaping up to big numbers. And maybe that doesn't change how they play. Maybe it does. Um, but certainly you've lost a tool. You've used your tool, but not for a great value. And you got to adjust your play or, or your opponent will um, to, to compensate. Yeah. So when, when you talk about bombs in particular, right, bait and switch, uh, gateway to disc, or any other sort of big, massive game swinging card, like the top of the pyramid. To have an effervescent principle. Yeah, so when you talk about these cards, um, there's a lot of value that they have when you play them versus when you don't play them. So you have to weigh the value of playing them too early and letting your opponent play knowing you don't have them anymore. There's a value they can actually gain you on any given turn. And then there's a value that you have to lose for potentially holding them to play them at the right time. Um, I think the, the other side of this, though, so in, in the bait and switch example, you're potentially holding or you're giving yourself like five chains to be able to play this card at a better time. The other side of this is a case where we're going to use doorstep. So let's say I have four Sanctum creatures that are pretty beefy on the board, and I only have one Sanctum card in my hand, and it's doorstep to heaven. If I play doorstep, I get the amber, and I'm drawing one card, and the new card I draw is probably not Sanctum. Do doorstep, just to be clear, it's a Sanctum event, grabs you an amber, and then it drops everyone down to five. So it really only has value. Out, it has value in the amber, but it really has big value when they're at seven, eight, nine amber. It stops them from forging, guaranteed. Yeah, it's something that you want to play uh, at the right time. But if I have four sanctum creatures, I can be pretty sure that if I reap this turn, like if I just say I'm just going to reap four times with sanctum, um, next turn I'm probably just going to reap four times again. Like there's a very high likelihood that I'm just going to declare sanctum again. So if I hold on to the doorstep to heaven, 
there, I'm not really losing a ton of value. It's not like I'm putting a bunch of chains on myself. There's a very good chance that I'll be putting no chains on myself if I just hold it for one or two more turns, if I know I'm going to play Sanctum again. And so this is, goes back to the, the cards. The, the, the critical difference here being that you, you know you're still playing Sanctum. Um, this is, of course, a little, a little presumptive saying, what if your board dies? And that's kind of the risk. Um, but if you're, if you're confident that you can play Sanctum again, then the gamble is I'm not going to lose my guys. I'm going to hold my doorstep so that I can play it at a moment's notice no matter what. That's, that's why it doesn't really cost you a chain because you're not switching to another faction and holding this dead card, this unusable card. It, it can almost be seen that the other five cards are what you're, what you're not cycling through. If those, five, if those five other cards are bad, if they're creatures that want to hit the board or events that really don't have a, a lot of impact to, to the board outside of you know what you need from getting the four reaps in the doorstep, if they don't do anything, then it's almost like each of those is giving you a chain. Once your board dies, similar to uh, when we were talking about Mega Mouth and John Smith, if your board dies, then that doorstep to heaven just got wasted. You have to play Sanctum again to use it. That's really bad. And um, one of the reasons that we harp a lot on building an infrastructure for your deck is that, you know, as Kodama just mentioned, you have these five other cards in your hand. Part of the reason that you might be declaring Sanctum every turn it's because it has value, but also you might be trying to increase the value of your other cards that you have in your hand. Like maybe you have these really awesome removal cards from this that are just sitting in your hand, but your opponent doesn't have good targets to hit with it. So you keep declaring Sanctum, keep declaring Sanctum, keep declaring Sanctum. And then once your opponent finally builds up a board that is worth destroying, that's when you hit them with multiple of the disc kill spells and then just kind of blow them out. So you can use that turn as a way to like you can use your board as a way to build up your hand when you're still doing the same thing of trying to hold cards right you're, you're taking these sort of suboptimal turns because you're trying to build to another turn later for a different house that you have uh cooking this is kind of why i like putting uh one of the one of the intricate reasons i like putting the bottom of our of our winning pyramid as building a board as having that infrastructure it's because it lets you have this um as long as you're confident in your board being sustainable or, or survivable, it lets you do these slightly less optimal plays to get the big plays at the top of the pyramid, the big doorstep to heaven, because you, you, you got the chance to hold it. Yeah, the, and like the big plays are at the top of the pyramid. And in a lot of ways, getting the big plays sometimes comes down to luck, right? Like bait and switch, for the most part, you just have to have it at the right time. But if you do have a good enough board infrastructure, you can actually put yourself in a position where you can hold on to these more valuable cards without much of a penalty. Whereas if you're in a situation where you don't have a board, you kind of just have to play cards as fast as you can. And whatever faction just has the most stuff, you usually have to play it and you have to cycle through your deck and you have to hope that your bombs hit at the right time. Whereas if you have a board, you can be a little bit more picky on when you play your cards and when you don't. Um, but for the purpose of this episode, that's really what we wanted to talk about. We wanted to talk about when is it the right decision to not play a certain faction or not play a certain card? Um, holding a certain faction is a little bit easier to evaluate. It's much easier to look at your hand and say, I can see two turns ahead. Then what are my draws going to be if I have to wait five turns or something? And I think, uh, I think some of this comes down to luck. Some things comes down to timing and skill play style. I think, I think there's a note to be said about deck construction. It's one of the reasons why I like having a, a faction that has eight guys, another one that has eight guys, and one of them has two guys. It lets you go between those two and build your, 
your infrastructure in only two colors and hold the bait and switch back and hold whatever uh, cool events are in the third faction back until the right time. Um, it, that's why it excites me a little bit less when I see a deck with, you know, I, I value a deck really low when I see 15 creatures, five, five, and five. It, it means there's no one time you can have an infrastructure. You're probably going to be playing the ping around uh, faction to faction to faction, playing as many cards as you can, and just getting marginal value out of them. Once you start having a little bit more of a nuanced deck, you can start getting these suboptimal plays to get the overall better plays in the game. And what Codameron's talking about here is actually what our topic for the next episode is going to be. We're going to be talking about house rules and how we evaluate any given lineup within the context of what you want it to do for your deck. But that's kind of a preview. It's still relevant to this discussion of trying to think multiple turns instead of just a single turn. But yeah, let's wrap it up. Uh, this has been another episode of Bouncing Death Quark. You can visit us on Facebook or Twitter. We are at Death Quark for either one of us. We are on every single platform that does podcasts. Tell your friends about it, grow the show, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.